What is the kingdom of God? It's a topic talked about in both the Old and the New Testaments. There are many descriptions of it, but they can be hard to remember together and even harder to apply. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. As we start our overview of the books of the New Testament, we'll also discuss it today in our lesson entitled, Overview of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Coming Kingdom of God. All that the Old Testament prepared for us is now reality. In truth, all we've studied in the Bible has led up to where we are now. The incarnation of Jesus, his birth, of him becoming permanently flesh and blood, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, he never really left. He was present at creation. It's good for us to remember this. In Colossians 1.15, it tells us Christ is the exact image of the unseen God. He existed before God made anything at all. And in fact, Christ himself is the creator who made everything in heaven and earth, the things we can see and the things we can't, the spirit world with its kings and kingdoms, its rulers and authorities, all were made by Christ for his own use and glory. He was before all else began, and it is his power that holds everything together. And when he created humanity, he walked with them in the perfect world he created. But it was their sin that broke the relationship. But God didn't give up on humanity. He was the promised Messiah from the earliest days. Immediately following Adam and Eve's sin that Genesis three fifteen and on tells us about, God clothed them with the skins of a sacrificed animal and promised that one day Satan would be crushed by a Messiah who would come. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament pictured how that Messiah would be the perfect sacrifice for sins, and in enacting it and living the commands of the covenant. This is what we've studied in the Old Testament, what the Jewish people were to do day by day, week by week, year by year. In doing these things, in living out the covenant, they were to illustrate God's coming plan of salvation. Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 really sums this up where it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, God is speaking, then you shall be my own possession from amongst all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. The, this idea that no matter what earthly kingdom might appear to be in charge, God's people were always a set-apart people, people of the kingdom of God, with God as their true king. This grew, this whole idea grew through the messages of the prophets with 65 very specific and over 500 references to Jesus and his coming reign and kingdom in the Old Testament. So you see the whole idea of the people being a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the kingdom of God, this whole idea was with them from the very start. 
Here are some of the additional Old Testament scriptures that show us that not only was Jesus promised as a person, but that an all-encompassing government would come along with him, where in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, now listen to this, maybe in, a, in sort of a new way, where it says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The idea of the kingdom means it's a place, it's a rule, it's a way of life. It's all of life where God is in charge. And this whole idea is repeated again and again in the Old Testament. In Daniel 2, 4, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, nor will its sovereignty be left to another people, but it will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it will stand forever. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth you see I'm bringing up these verses in part not only to set up what the New Testament is going to tell us about the kingdom of God, but we so often tend to look at our faith as just an individual thing. What's it going to do for me? It's all just about me, um, about my salvation, about me personally, but it's so much bigger. And Jesus came to to widen our eyes to help us see that. But again, it isn't new in the New Testament. It's something that was foretold. The kingdom was a promise, a vision, a prayer throughout the entire Old Testament. I'm just showing you a few verses. Here's one from Psalm 72, uh, well, passages actually, 72, 5 through 8, where it says, May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like flower, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's, it tells us in Obadiah. The idea of a king ruling over a kingdom of righteousness, prosperity, and peace was a constant through the Old Testament. And the present the present system is of our world, of how messed up it is, and the anger, and the strife, and how difficult it is to be a good person. This is not how our world, not just individuals, 
It's not how our world was designed to be. But after all of these prophecies, after all of these promises, then came 400 years of silence. And you can look at the lessons on Bible 805 if you want to see what happened during that time. But the silence is broken by the promised, he'd been prophesied in the Old Testament to forerunner of the kingdom, appearing out of the desert and announcing in Matthew 3, 2, repent, turn around, change your ways, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or as the message translation puts it, change your life. God's kingdom is here. To inaugurate the kingdom, we see Jesus, the Lord of eternity, incarnated, now made flesh and blood, tangible and touchable, walking among his creation. That's what the Gospels are all about. The Gospels are not traditional biographies. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, three are very similar in content. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And these are called the synoptic Gospels. It means they have a similar view. When you just look at the word synoptic, obviously, sin, like in, in um, uh, similar, etc., that's the root of that. And then optic, like our optic nerve, optics, what you see. So having a similar view, that's what we call those three. The book of John is very different. Now, each of these was written for a different audience, and I'll go into detail on that in just a minute. But now here's why we're reading them the way we are. Many plans, um, and I before I put together my chronological plan, um, I studied many, many different plans, tried them, and many plans have you read all four together, um, where you just read the different uh, gospel writers their version of what happened at a certain event. I think that's a, a really incorrect way to read it. I do not think that's the best idea. And, you know, kind of what's the point of reading them that way? You just get all these different viewpoints because what it also does is it totally destroys the flow of each book and it obscures the audience and the purpose of the book. You need to, God designed these books and the writers write um, at different times. Now, not terribly different. Now, John was written quite a bit later, but at, um, you know, a fairly short span of time. But each book is written with a different viewpoint to a different audience. And I think it's very, very important to keep that together. Our plan is you read all three synoptics early on, book by book, because that lays a foundation for what's in the rest of the entire New Testament. You need to know the story of Jesus because that's what it's all about. And even though chronologically the Gospels were actually written after many of the letters, they were written first. Again, they lay the foundation. We're reading John at the end of our reading because it was one of the last books written. And also it's a good review of the life of Jesus and a good preparation for reading the book of Revelation. And by the way, the book of Revelation, it's not revelations, not plural, not just about scary stories and all that. The uh, The book is entitled, and if you go into the Greek, it's the revelation singular of Jesus Christ. That's what the book is all about. It's about Jesus. The book of John was written shortly before it and is a very good introduction to it. But we won't get to that until December. So uh, now we're focusing on the synoptics. 
overall, they're not traditional biographies with the childhood and all of Jesus' life included. Um, there is a little, there's very little of that in them. They're very selective in what they talk about. What's important, though, is they each had a specific audience in mind and an emphasis tailored to that audience. In this lesson, we'll go over each one of them briefly, plus we're going to discuss the overarching theme that is in all of them that's very important, presented in different ways, different aspects of it, but that of the kingdom of God. In the next lessons, we're going to talk about, first of all, what isn't in the New Testament. We're going to talk about what is Gnosticism, what are the Gnostic Gospels. These are having a huge resurgence now. They come up every few years, and I will give you an in-depth analysis of them. I will give you excerpts from them that when you read them, you do not need to be a scholar. Uh, it's very easy to see why we don't include them in. I will also give you the um, historical and textual reasons why we do not include them. Then the next lesson is very interesting. We'll talk about what the Gospels tell us about the Trinity, and um, it's acknowledged that the fullness of the Trinity isn't really seen until the New Testament, but I think exactly how that's shown and what you can learn from it will be very interesting. Uh, this is Now, here is the pattern of the Bible 805 lessons. The way I do them is uh, we're reading, I'm having you read through the, the books in the Bible, and if you go to the Bible 805 website, website, uh, www.bible805.com. You can download a Bible reading schedule, and there's uh, one, two, three, or four chapters a day to read, just depending upon where we are. Now, obviously, I can't talk about all of those things in the weekly lessons. What I do in the weekly lessons is I take an overall theme of something that we've been reading or that we're going to be reading in that group and discuss it. What I do have for you, though, on a day-by-day basis to go through the readings themselves is if you go to the YouTube channel, uh, www.youtube.com slash Bible805, I do have short under five minute videos that go into each of the lessons I'm doing that new new this year. Pray for me that I can keep it up. But um, uh, I think that will really help you. Even if you don't have time to read each passage, you'll get a brief overview of, of what we're reading. And then the weekly lessons will make more sense, I hope, to you. Now, let's jump into Matthew. It was written by Jesus' disciple Matthew. He was a former tax collector. He was uh, very hated, very despised, considered a collaborator with the Romans, but Jesus called him. And his audience in his gospel is very clearly a Jewish one. He doesn't explain Hebrew terms. He assumes that his writers are familiar with the Old Testament. The book is very, very much a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he constantly talks about various things that happened in Jesus' life that what he did, what he said, what he showed to people, his discussions, his actions, everything. He talks about how these fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. His very clear goal, 
is to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. There are 50 direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew, plus 75 allusions to other Old Testament events. Now, I would really encourage you to do this. I've, I've done this a couple of times when I've read through Matthew, and I found it very, very helpful. Every time he says something like, this was written to fulfill, uh, this is according to what the prophet said. Jesus said, haven't you read? read. Any of these sorts of things that refer to the Old Testament, just um, make a little circle by them. What I actually did one time in my Bible is I wrote a number, and uh, oh, this is number time number one where this is mentioned, and then two, three, four, and you will be amazed at how these passages of the Old Testament will just jump up to you and how Jesus is fulfilling them. Um, there was an article in the Christian Courier a few years ago talking about the different Gospels, and I have a quote for you from them for each of them that I think really is a good summary of it. And here's the quote from Matthew. It says, even though Matthew's thrust is decidedly Jewish, he is also aware of the fact that the Gentiles have an appointed place in the kingdom of God. Accordingly, he attempts to condition Hebrew thinking with this concept. He alludes to those who will come from afar to sit with the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 8. He plainly declares that the Gentiles have hope in the name of Christ in Matthew 12. And Matthew's account of the Great Commission is universal in its scope. Now then, the book of Mark, his authority for writing was that he worked closely with Peter, Jesus' disciple, and he was also a cousin of Barnabas, who traveled with the Apostle Paul. His background is, first of all, even though he, he had first traveled with Paul and Barnabas, then he quit. And Paul got really angry, and there was a big split between him and Barnabas. Then he later traveled with Barnabas, and then somehow or other, we don't know the whole story, but he reconciled with Paul, and then later he worked with Peter in Rome. His audience is the Roman world, and tradition tells us that he wrote it there during a time of persecution of the Christians. And again, tradition tells us that he wrote it shortly after Peter's death. Mark wrote for a Gentile audience, um, and this is brought out in numerous places in the gospel. He did not include things that were important to Jewish readers. Uh, he didn't put in any genealogies. He didn't put in Christ's controversies with the Jewish leaders. He doesn't have references to the Old Testament. Mark emphasizes Christ as the suffering servant, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he did this, again, many commentators believe, to encourage those suffering as servants of Christ, written to a specific group of people at a time, but really applying to all of us for all time. And here's the commentary quote on Mark where it says, whereas Matthew emphasized the words of the Lord, Mark, while recording only one major sermon, underscores Christ's deeds. He characterizes Jesus as a servant who came to do the Father's will, and servant-like, he did so with great urgency. Mark uses the servant's word, ethos, immediately, 14 times in describing the activities of the Savior. And then we come to Luke. 
Luke specifically, he tells us why he did what he did. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of those things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Um, Theophilus can also be translated just lover of God, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke was a very careful observer. He obviously interviewed, well, he says he interviewed, he talked to people, and he particularly talked to the women. You find out more about Mary than in any of the other books. You find out, uh, we, we have what she said when she found out she was pregnant with Jesus, the Magnificent, her prayer, her interactions with Elizabeth. You have just a whole lot more of her thoughts and ideas, and obviously he talked to her about it. He is the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, and he writes for a Gentile audience. His authority, though, came from his companionship with Paul. And in the commentary on it, I have several quotes from the commentary because they're really good, where he says, Luke provides first-rate testimony for the genuineness of Jesus' miracles. A scientist by profession, he had thoroughly investigated the claims of Christ's supernatural works. He mentions 20 of them, six which are unique to him, and he treats them as historical reality. And little note that I have, his history is impeccable. He quotes things like even, you know, who was a ruler at that time, and the names of the streets, and down to the most minute details that archaeologists and historians have found that are true. But then the commentator goes on and says, moreover, the evidence for the Lord's virgin birth must have been overwhelming for a doctor to acknowledge it and argue the case as strongly as Luke did. All the Gospels, in addition to these unique things that I pointed out and their, um, their unique audiences, contain the theme of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. There are many things that we can talk about, but this overarching one, what are we talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God? In summary, it is where God truly reigns, where his will is followed. It is both the future, because that will happen in totality when Jesus returns and renews all things. And yet, <laughs> here's the challenge. It's broken into our world with the coming of Jesus. It is the answer to the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This isn't just future. It's for now also. It is present and not yet. The reality of the kingdom of God, both present and not yet, is one of the great challenges and tensions of the Christian life. The question for us is, how do we live in this present world with a kingdom mindset? The lesson material that follows has some thoughts on it. But first, and most importantly to answer this question, let's look at our king. Because he characterizes the kingdom, and in looking at him, we'll see how we're supposed to live. First of all, he wasn't 
what people expected him to be. Starting out with the people who knew him really well, his hometown, it says, The Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> well, what was their response? He was in his hometown. They didn't go, yay, wonderful. We want to encourage you. Go forth with our blessing. They mocked him and they attempted to stone him. Now, what did he do? He did what they didn't expect. In addition to his hometown simply rejecting everything he had to say, others had expectations that the Messiah would come and do great things and conquer Rome and all that kind of stuff. But he said he was there to proclaim good news to the poor. And he quoted the Old Testament passage to support it. And he didn't just mean the poor in money. The poor, he was talking about the poor in many ways. He talks about, in other places, the poor in spirit, those poor in health and wealth and everywhere in the world. They're the ones that he consistently made his priority throughout his earthly life. Those he chose to follow him, those he ministered to. And Here's what's important. He expects his followers to do the same. Jesus is consistent with that priority when at the end of his life, in his earthly life, in Matthew 25, at the end of the age, when he talks about that, and he's separating the sheep from the goats, from those who followed him, from those who didn't, he picks up on exactly the same theme. He said to those who were blessed by him, he said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I didn't have clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to visit me there. And there's many ways of giving to the poor. And in doing that, Jesus said, we give to him. That is what people who follow Jesus, who are representatives of his kingdom, that's what they do, and that's what they'll be judged. It isn't loud, demanding, self-righteous things. Living a life that, as Jesus said, is good news for the poor. Again and again, he went against expectations. He stated clearly also that he didn't come to judge, but to show mercy. And he said in Matthew 9, 13, I desire mercy not sacrifice. And this recalls, of course, to us in Micah 6, 8, where it says, And what does the Lord require? to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. He expresses this characteristic in so many places. He warns an unjust servant that he'd been forgiven. And even if he wouldn't forgive a fellow servant, he's going to be punished more severely. He reminds Peter that he needed to forgive 70 times 7, which is an unlimited amount. Both of those stories are in Matthew 18. In looking at his example, I have to look at myself. And this is something that really spoke to me when I was studying Matthew this time, where I, and I had to ask myself, how do we get the idea 
I'm talking to myself, how did I get the idea that being harsh and demanding is how you're a good representative of Jesus? Now think about it. I was thinking, you know, and I'm saying, Lord, I don't know how you pulled this off. Because if somebody doesn't do what we want to do, what we expect, what they should do, what we've asked them to do and asked them to do and reminded them to do and told them to do, we consider ourselves justifiably angry. We want them to pay for it. We want them to be judged or at least to be shamed and ignored. Now look at Israel. They had rejected and disobeyed God for thousands of years. One would think that their king would come in wrath, in anger, that every day would be a cleansing of the temple. But he didn't do that. Remember in John 3, 16 and 17, early on in his ministry, when Nicodemus came to them, him, he said, you know, God so loved the world that he gave. And then he goes on to say that he didn't come, he didn't send, God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but the world, but that the world through him might be saved. As I thought about that, I thought, you know, most of us know our own sins. We know we've done wrong. Most people do. We know we fall short, but few know a way out. Few know somebody that can forgive them. That's what Jesus came to provide. And being like our king, being part of his kingdom, means we need to, be, we need to have a redemptive, not judgmental posture and attitude towards those who sin. And I know I have a long way in myself to really work on that. But again, that whole idea of a posture of redemption is, I think, really a good idea. I've been reading a number of books. I've been reading a book on dechurching and how, uh, you know, just so many people have left the church. And much of that has to do with people in the church being judgmental and people not listening, answering questions. And we can go on and on and on about how right we are to do that and how correct we are and how sinful people are. And all that's true. But And Jesus knew that far better than we do. I mean, he knew the depths of sin in people's hearts, but yet he loved them. And in contrast to just wanting to pound on people, look for specific descriptions of the kingdom of God as you read the Gospels. Though really everything Jesus says and does is about the kingdom breaking in. That's why the miracles are there. That's why the healing. That's why the abundant food. That's why the peace to troubled spirits. All those are illustrations of kingdom life. Yet, Look for specifics where the kingdom's mentioned, like just some of the verses that I'm going to share with you. In Matthew 13, 44 through 46, it says, The kingdom of heaven's like a treasure, hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding a pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had and bought it. This tells us the kingdom is worth all we can give up for it, or we can give to purchase it. Matthew 13, 31 through 43, he has another parable where he talks about the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and it's smaller than all the other seeds. But when it's grown, it's larger than all the other plants. And he spoke another parable, and he said it's like leaven, and it's knead it into the flour, and then it it goes through all the flour. 
his example here, the kingdom of heaven doesn't grow in obvious ways, but it's very sure in its outcome. And some more. In Matthew 25, he says, The kingdom of heaven is comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Now, some commentators say that this is a warning to those simply going along with the crowd that you can't just not have the Holy Spirit with you. The Holy Spirit is like the oil there, and that's what we have to have if we're going to follow Jesus. We have to be truly his and not just kind of going along with the crowd if we really want to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, the parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents where a man went on a journey and he entrusted his possessions to different people. One, he gave five talents, another two, another one. And at the end, there was an accounting for them. And the thing that I want you to keep in mind here is this this parable, we're all familiar with it, we've all heard it, but it is so often misinterpreted where people think that all of the servants here, well done, good and faithful servant, but they don't. The one that did nothing with the gifts that God gave him was really chastised by Jesus. And so we need to take that parable very seriously, that if we're given kingdom work to do, we need to be about doing it. Christianity is not about us, not just about what we can get out of it. We're saved to serve, to be productive in our faith. How we might do that, it's different for everybody, but we all need to be about doing our Lord's business. And a closing challenge, not only are we citizens of the kingdom of heaven when we follow Jesus as our Savior, but he's honored us and he makes us his ambassadors. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Just as he sent out his disciples to share the good news, so too he has a plan for us. We're to be the yeast permeating society, the lights in the world wherever we are, showing people what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God until our rightful king returns. I pray we all do that well. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and the other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are in your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.